The views expressed in this podcast do not reflect the views of Cleveland State University, and my participation in this podcast is separate from my roles there as associate lecturer and director of the school psychology program. Further, this podcast is for educational use only and should not be considered professional advice. Welcome back, listeners, to the Handsful Parenting Podcast. Thanks for joining us for the Handsful Parenting Podcast. This is episode number 25, and I'm joined, as always, by my fabulous co-host, Axel Balsadanzi. ¿Qué haces, Che? ¿Qué haces, Che? ¿Cómo estás? Muy bien. Uh, we, we also have the honor of being joined this week by the one and only Sarah Reith. Uh, Sarah was a school psychologist, intervention curriculum coordinator, response to intervention trainer before founding and becoming CEO of a successful and rapidly growing mentoring nonprofit in Central Ohio. So there's an absolute dynamo. We're so excited she agreed to share her wisdom and vast knowledge with us today to tell us we can, what we can learn about parenting from the best mentors. So Sarah, before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, why you started a mentoring nonprofit and a bit about your organization, Huddle. Yeah, so grateful to be here for sure. Uh, you know, I, I think that as a school psychologist, which Patrick, you are as well, uh, we tend to be uh, these individuals who have a perspective towards problem solving, right? And so it's a question of, you know, what is this what is this point of discomfort? And then what are we doing to address it? And how can we think outside the box? And so the organization O-Huddle was really born, the impetus was uh, around some of the challenges that we were seeing in the public school setting. Uh, as I was you know, identifying students and students were not eligible for special education services, the question becomes, what are the non-academic barriers that are inhibiting them from thriving? And uh, when I looked at the commonality, I, you know, I say uh, spreadsheets are my love language. I really, really love data and you know, the story that the data tells us. And uh, the story that the data was telling us in this season uh, over 10 years ago now was that the two uh, commonalities that our students who were struggling learners had who were also not eligible for services was poverty and trauma. And those are big problems. Those are not small problems. Uh, and yet that was a trend. And looking at that trend and saying, you know, what does the research show that we can do to mitigate the issues of uh, poverty and trauma on our school age population, mentorship was the number one intervention. And so, uh, you know, the story is that I very naively called all the social service agencies and said, okay, who does school-based mentorship? And we did not have a school-based mentorship program in our county. Uh, and so I thought, well, in between evaluations and IEP meetings and all of those things, we'll just, we'll get something started. And so that was the naivete for sure, because, uh, you know, mentorship is a big thing too, and uh, takes a lot of, of different layers to it. And so now, uh, 10 years later, we are serving 601 students here in Wayne County in one-to-one -one mentorship. Uh, we are the largest organization in the state serving at a one-to-one -one ratio in a single county. And so feel really proud of the community and how they have wrapped around uh, the, you know, need of supporting our students in a school age season. Wow, 600 students, one-to-one -one mentors. So you have 600 or over 600 mentors. 
Uh, actually not. Some, some mentors serve more than one student. So we're hovering right around the 400 mark for our volunteer mentors. Um, and, you know, that really is with this idea that, yes, you know, individualized, we're never kind of small group mentoring, but uh, sometimes you'll have a re retired teacher um, or, you know, an individual who really has a heart to come in a couple of days a week and, and wants to mentor two students. And uh, we do have a good number of, of mentors that are doing that. Uh, we have a site coordinator in each of the buildings that we serve, and they also take on a small caseload while we're waiting for other volunteers to come on board so that we can serve um, as many students as possible in in that one-to-one -one framework. Right. And where are you finding all these mentors? Uh, we're beating the bushes. So I probably go to a church every single uh, Sunday, a different church to kind of, uh, you know, talk a little bit about the need for volunteers in our, our school-based services, also going around to, um, you know, different corporate partners and, and just really trying to spread the word about how this is valuable. You know, when we look at volunteerism, uh, what science shows us is that the, the feedback ratio, the benefit that you get uh, from volunteering and from, you know, contributing in a service oriented way is is beneficial to you. And I think that people recognize that and there's a generativity to it uh, here in this community where they say, boy, I didn't expect to get as much out as what I was you know coming to give. And it's really it's feeling fruitful for me. And, and they share that with with their, uh, you know, their community. So that's been very fortunate for us. So you sell it a little bit by saying, hey, this isn't just purely altruistic. You're going to receive some actual benefit from this as well. Sort of like probably personal health, emotional, you know, fulfillment benefit. And that's something. Yeah, life satisfaction. You live longer. I mean, who doesn't want that, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Come mentor a kid and add years to your life is what I say. Well, as you were describing some of this, I was thinking about it. And, you know, there's so many retirees out there who you know, are enjoying themselves, but they have so much to give, you know, and sure, many are taking care of grandchildren and, and whatnot, but others are not. And, you know, young kids uh, who need adult leadership, mentorship could really benefit from folks who are retired. And, you know, would we be willing to what uh, volunteer a couple hours a week? How, how long is, is the commitment? Yeah, so the commitment is one hour once a week. And, you know, the model that we've built is a school-based model. When I worked in clinical practice prior to being in the schools, I was really struck by uh, the difference between, um, you know, who comes to the doctor, who comes to, um, you know, psychological services versus when you're in the school, you see everyone. And so I really thought I was serving the deep need in clinical, but uh, you're, you're really serving the deepest need in school because sometimes, you know, people are underserved. And so, uh, you know, the, the idea for us was we want to catch kids where they're at. At, and we want to do that during the school day. And so the beauty of that is that we've got high fidelity of them meeting during that one hour once a week, but five days a week, we've got a site coordinator who is on staff and has their own office in the school building. And so that student is really getting service coordination pretty consistently. Um, and it's very much that Maslow's hierarchy of need where uh, we're trying to activate higher thinking and learning, but we're doing it through sense of belonging and that trust built in sense of belonging is, is identifying that foundation of, do you have enough clothing? Do you have enough food? Uh, do you have those shelter needs met so that you are prepared and ready uh, to activate learning? Yeah. So what you're describing is these students who are receiving mentoring services have this one-on-one -on -one mentorship, but they also have all sorts of other wraparound services as part of your organization. Absolutely. Yeah. We're not trying to do everything, but we want to make sure every kid gets exactly what they need through partnerships and collaboration. 
And, and what sorts of things, like in my mind, I have this idea that mentors are like big brothers, big sisters, like which I was part of and that like you're playing basketball with, you know, a kid and for an hour a day, but like surely there's more than just shooting hoops with, with a kid uh, as part of mentorship. What, what does it look like? What are some of the things that mentors do with uh, the kids? That they work yeah, with. we want to make sure that what we're doing is working, right? So it really is about making sure there's a golden thread of evidence-based practice in everything that we do. And so we operate off of the 40 developmental assets. Uh, there's about 50 years worth of research around these this precept of these 40 different experiences and opportunities that if kids have these in their life, they are more likely to thrive. They're more likely to graduate. They are more likely to actually be physically healthy, uh, to value diversity. They're less likely to you know, abuse drugs and alcohol, less likely to be violent. And so every single week we take one of those 40, you know, it's fortunate that there's about 38 weeks in uh, school year, we've got 40 developmental assets. And so we're taking one each week and we're fostering that through some opportunities. We're making sure that the mentors are equipped in language and questions and project-based opportunities for the kids, but everything that we do is really student directed. So um, there are, you know, games and basketballs and, and uh, you know, art projects in the uh, O'Huddle offices. And we start off with, you know, here's the highlighted thing, but do you want to do this project? And the kid might say, no, I want to go play basketball or I want to play Uno for the 17th time. And that's what we do. It's the content of conversation that we have in between those things that allow, allows the, uh, you know, 40 developmental assets to take hold because you're really doing that organically through relationship, not through here is a curriculum, here are worksheets we're doing, let's workbook this out. It has to feel organic. Can, can you give us some examples of those 40? And because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how you combine that because there is also a part of a school mentorship, I imagine, mm -hmm. like helping the, the student with math or language or whatever. And uh, so I'd like to know, well, there's two questions in one. What, what are some of these uh, 40 and how are they combined in that hour and a half to, mm -hmm. to, to also help the kid through school? Yeah. And I would say that what we try to be really careful of is, yes, if, if we're identifying that a student needs tutoring, we want to provide access to that, but we don't want the relationship to be solely around academic variables. And so what happens is uh, we might have a mentor who's sitting down with a student and they're identifying, oh, you have an F in this class, you're not going to make it through. They're going to share that information with the site coordinator and they're going to get tutoring in addition to mentorship. Um, it oh. is, you know, sometimes okay. the mentors, oh, here's a project that you've got to do the next period, or here's a presentation you want to practice. We definitely do those things, but we try not to uh, supplant mentorship with met with a uh, tutoring need because then it is really seen differently. The stigma is different for it. So helpful for sure, but not in, in isolation, consistent tutoring. Um, and that's mm. really intentional to make sure that the there's longitudinal practice of the student engagement with them. Because um, I know when I was going to math tutoring, that was not always my favorite thing to do because I it was not super great stellar at math. Um, mm. And so I, it felt like it was a little bit of a chore. We want that 
that relationship to be something that the student is looking forward to and that they have some autonomy in and they have an opportunity to have some self-choice. And so um, that's just kind of along that side of the, the question of, you know, what, what are we during do, doing during that time? I would say the project-based design for us, some examples are, uh, you know, reading for pleasure is one of the developmental assets. And so if a mm. student garners reading for pleasure, uh, then they're going to, you know, it's one of the 40 that's going to enable them to be, uh, you know, self-actualized and, and um, you know, uh, again, a thriving youth. And so during that week that we're talking about re reading for pleasure, we have a partnership with um, the local libraries where when they're pulling books off of their shelves and they're culling those, uh, we are the beneficiaries of them. And so we have, you know, 100 books in a given site. And uh, the mentor and the student have an opportunity to choose a book together. And then that's something that they can read and have conversation on. And it's just really a talking point. Um, and we, we, you know, talk about, you know, what are your reading lists? What are your things that you're into? Okay, well, let's, you know, let's take these steps. Uh, something that we've done that I think is really interesting alongside of those 40 developmental assets is we've launched something in the community called Neighborhood Huddle. And that's a way to generalize those skills in the community. And so while every week in the school building, we're practicing these different things, and it might be we're talking about caring neighborhood, here's how you go and order um, in a coffee line your beverage in a polite way that's going to be well received and it's going to make you a caring citizen, right? But if you're not actually doing that in those real places, and that behavior might not generalize to those real places. And so we have 40 business partners that let us have a little kiosk sign, um, an 18 by 20 inch uh, kiosk sign that has a tablet built into it. And that becomes one of 40 stops in the community that kids can go and practice these assets. So the reading for pleasure asset is in a used bookstore. And when kids come and they interact with this tablet, they get to keep a free book from the store that was purchased by a sponsor for us. And that enables them to go to that location that's going to be available outside of the school day to practice, you know, reading for pleasure. And so uh, once kids hit all of those 40 stops, they get a free tablet from us that was donated by somebody. And it just incentivizes this amazing race style engagement of practicing your assets in real places and also fostering a caring community of people who have been trained to interact with kids in a way that is set up for success. This is very interesting. I, I, I'm wondering one thing. One of this thing that you're describing looks like something in some families, at least, or, or many families, is usually done by either a father or mother or a member of the family. An uncle say, "Hey, let's go to the used bookstore." And uh, is it okay to believe that many kids get to learn these things without even knowing it's it's a vital learning? A skill uh, for their lives, right? Or go to a coffee shop and order. So the case I'm wondering if in the, the with the, the 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 children you work with, is it that there is no one there to do that, or is it that even in the families, this sort of uh, basic socializing skills are also lost and 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 they don't get taught because maybe their parents have never had the chance to go to a bookstore and haven't been educated in, in that sort of thing. So I'm wondering if, if is, is it just the parents don't pay attention to teach this or just it's, it's so lost in our community that uh, whole families have no one to, to guide kids through this. Yeah, what a great question. 
Uh, I would say, I think it's many things. It's it's difficult to say it's always this or it's always that. I would say uh, from the top end, when we look at what does it take to raise a child in today's culture and in contemporary society? People love to use this adage of it takes a village to raise a child. Uh, but when you are an educator in a public school setting, there are a finite number of humans. There are a finite number of resources fiscally that you can only spend on certain dollars that you can only spend on certain things. But the problems are more expansive than those resources that we have, whether it be for an affluent student or a student or a student who is living in poverty. Sometimes we have problems and needs that take more humans and take more resources. And I think that's what we've built really this nonprofit organization around is uh, reducing those non-academic barriers by mobilizing the community, by bringing in more humans, by bringing in talented humans who might not be uh, accessing the school building. Otherwise, if they don't have a kid mm -hmm. in the building, they're not necessarily coming and volunteering in a school. Um, and then also saying, you know, what are the things that are actually needed in this school in order to, to take us to the next level or to be creative and thinking outside of the box? And how do we access those and leverage those from the community in a way that actually meets the need? And so I think it's just that, you know, we sometimes have a, a little bit of scarcity around the resources needed to get the job done just in culture. But I would say absolutely that there is a deficit of uh, human capital at home for many students, especially those students who are living in poverty as well. Um, we do a lot of work around Bridges Out of Poverty and, and Ruby Payne's work um, that really identifies the experience of an individual living in poverty from a standpoint of what kind of uh, mental space do you have to be able to give stamina to a situation, to be able to give positive attention when you are truly kind of fighting for your life when it comes to physical resources. And so if you have a child who's living in poverty, let's say with a single grandmother or now in our community, sometimes single great grandmothers who are raising their great grandchildren, uh, the mental space that she has to let's go to the used bookstore, let's have a sit down conversation about, um, you know, this healthy eating uh, opportunity or, you know, access to those kinds of things uh, is, is really a need. Um, you know, I recently heard somebody say, you know, I was born on third base. And so I want to use those assets to be able to pull others forward with me. And I thought that was a really lovely perspective of not every kid is born on the same base. And so how do we really reduce those incidences of symptoms relative to ACEs, those ACE scores? We have to do that through human capital and really mentorship and uh, doing that to mobilize mentors is one of the number one ways that we can combat the, the uh, symptoms of ACEs. For, for uh, by ACEs, she means adverse childhood experiences, and it's a an assessment or test that you could take. It's like ten questions, and the higher your score is, relates to the more or early childhood traumas that you've had in your life, which relates to um, having all sorts of negative outcomes, both physically, mental health wise, addiction wise, and so you're working to sort of mitigate those when you realize that those risk factors exist in kids. Um, what I wanted to mention is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like, as you 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 mentioned, um, sort of like it takes a village, uh, you're building that village within the community so that, because, I mean, I guess the assumption is we kind of lost that village at some point in time. We became disconnected and we lost trust of our neighbors and the people in our community to help us raise our children. Now, how do we reestablish those bonds? And it sounds like you're doing that sort of 
business by business, person by person, sort of bringing them into this world and into this investment to help raise all these kids who have all these risk factors. And I think that's phenomenal because uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing. I appreciate it. I think, you know, some problems are uh, micro problems and some problems are macro problems, right? And, you know, we've always called O'Huddle and and our both how we train our mentors and how we uh, engage with the community kind of eating the whale. You're not going to sit down and eat the whale in one sitting. You're going to take one bite at a time and it's eventually going to culminate into something that is fruitful and hopeful. And at the end of the day, you know, we all have our seasons of winter. We all have our individual challenges, but we really get through that by being a part of something hopeful. And I think education is a little bit of, uh, you know, that that kind of uh, scenario is personified in education today is you see so many educators who are kind of rusting out. They're not necessarily even burning out. They're just like slowly rusting out in a lack of hope. And, uh, you know, creating the organization was as much for uh, the experiences of the educators as it was for the kids, because you don't go into education with this idea that uh, you're just doing it for the paycheck or that you're doing it for the power because neither of those things are uh, are, are really tenants of uh, what, what public education is. But if you're coming to serve and you're feeling like the needs surpass the resources that you have, then that's heartbreaking. And by having the community kind of wrap around and say, how can we help? What do you need? And let's really move the needle. And then seeing the needle moved, it's hopeful. And it's something that is replicable as well. Uh, and I think that's what we've seen as we've grown across the county is we really do have a formula now for how you do this and how you do it successfully in a way that makes a difference statistically as well as anecdotally. Yeah. Awesome. Now, you mentioned one other thing uh, with regard to the actual activities that your mentors engage uh, in with the um, kids in your program. And I think it's neat that it's a lot of it is self-directed. Axel and I've talked in previous podcasts about how kids are lives are structured so much. They're told to do you know, stuff so much um, and, and given orders. They rarely have time to make their own minds up about things and, and to direct their own activities um, these days uh, less than ever. You know, we talked about how that may be leading to the adolescent mental health crisis to some degree. And, you know, the whole idea of play therapy is to get a child into a room and basically let them make their own choices about what they want to do, not ask them, not quite, not ask them questions, not direct them uh, in a certain uh, way to do something, but simply be there with them, allow them to do what they want to do, reflect what they're saying, reflect what they're doing. And then the whole idea that that has significant therapeutic benefit uh, is remarkable. I think a sense of personal power and a sense of being able to, uh, you know, feel what autonomy is like in an adult child dynamic is something that there's not always space for in the structured routines that we have for kids in, in this season. And, you know, what, what research shows is that that's really good for every single human is to be able to have a sense of uh, this person 
mirroring back your best self in a way that you are kind of still self-discovering through and being curious about you and saying, okay, well, what do you think next? And what should we do? And, um, you know, holding that unconditional regard, but in a way that is naturally curious too. Uh, it helps kids to be curious. And when we look at, uh, you know, meditation or we, we look at mindfulness practices, mindfulness is really all about curiosity as well. There are so many leadership books that are out that are saying, you know, to be a better leader, you have to uh, be curious and engage and ask more questions than answers. Those are all things that are natural to a mentorship process. And so it, it really is just leveraging positive psychology in a way that is yielding positive outcome. You know, as we begin to move towards intersecting uh, mentoring with parenting, um, I wonder if you could describe your best mentors. Uh, in what way are they effective at providing therapeutic relief and supporting kids? Mm -hmm, yes, and, sure. and actually, before you go into that, because I'm thinking, well, I want my kids to have a mentor too. <laughs> <laughs> because, because that's something not only... Uh, kids that come from a different background need to be to interact most with the community and to get other perspectives and, and sometimes parents don't get that same attention span or, or we we focus on things that belong to our family culture but we don't focus more neutrally like someone from outside the family might be more ready to really follow the child's interest so i'm wondering if all, all your kids come from underprivileged houses or do you have kids that do not fit the 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 regular um, uh, underprivileged youth and and still want to participate in the program. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I think that uh, you're you hit the you know nail on the head relative to uh, you know who is this good for, and it really is good for everyone. And so while mm. we started with this identifier of we need to make sure that kids who were not born on third base have opportunities to get to third more quickly, uh, mm. we really quickly realized that it's also important to have a heterogeneous group of kids so that everybody's in the room and doesn't find what those identifiers are and also because it benefits everyone. So, you know, mm -hmm. I had a superintendent say, well, everybody should have a mentor and I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, my own children, uh, I have an 11 year old and a 13 year old, they both have mentors for the OL oh, okay. program. And I was really intentional about doing that because I wanted to, number one, have those same benefits for, for my kids. But I also wanted to be able to say to parents who I was talking to, my own kids are in this program. I value mm -hmm. it and see the value of it to the degree that it is providing something to our family. Uh, my husband, is a, um, a school counselor in an elementary school. I was a school psychologist. I feel like we have a lot of intentional design in our parenting practice around structure and why we do things and what is underneath the iceberg of the scaffolding behind our parenting decisions. This was one of them that was a no-brainer for us. And the, the fruit that is born out of, you know, I'll speak up. My, my son has a uh, mentor who is a former um, New Jersey uh, lawyer. And he is uh, just hilarious and high powered and sarcastic. And um, they have the, the loveliest conversations that are really different than the conversations that my husband and I have with him. It's a different power dynamic, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's no, uh, you know, need for necessarily consequencing or, you know, holding accountable certain things in a mentor relationship the same way that it would be uh, for parenting. And yet there still is an element of challenging growth. Um, once there's been, usually it takes a year for, for, for an adult to get to the point where they can challenge 
growth of a, of a child. And so, you know, having diversity in mentorship is, is uh, necessary and important and valuable. Um, but I would say that, you know, we have so many different pairings that when you ask the question of who, what are the best kinds of mentorship that we have? It really is a mentor who is coming in, uh, again, with that sense of curiosity, but also looking for opportunities to catch the kid doing well, or to get a kid to look at things from a different perspective. Uh, I think we have you know, tendency is often where kids will um, be able to look at things only through one angle. And even though we tell them or try to explain it to them until they have lived experience through the thing that we're trying to describe, the light bulb doesn't go off. So for example, I had a, a mentor who uh, was working with a student, an elementary age student, and that kid was going to be going up to the middle school and was nervous about going. And she uh, was talking about how, well, you know, I have kids, uh, my own children have gone through and they, you always get to go on an orientation up to the middle school. Do you want me to go, you know, with the site coordinator with you and, and go on the tour with you and just kind of like be there with you as you're experiencing it. And she did. And afterwards turned to the kid and said, all right, bud, what do you think? Are you, are you ready to come to the middle school? And he's like, yeah, I guess so. It's okay. And she said to him, uh, is it okay if I come and see you here next year instead of over at the elementary school? And he kind of sat up real straight and he looked at her, he said, well, what, you're, you're going to come, do you have a kid here? And she said, well, yeah, you. And he said, well, you're going to come here just for me. And she said, I've been telling you, I go to that other school just for you. I don't have a job there. Like I kept trying to explain it to you. I think that's the spirit of the best kind of mentor is one who's patient through the process of getting the kid's light bulb to come on and just slowly kind of stoking the flame of encouragement. Uh, a mentor who can apologize to a kid is huge. Kids don't get apologized to. And what a sense of power and, um, you know, a, a sense of identity when a mentor can say, you know what, I think I got that wrong. Uh, and I'm really sorry about that. I didn't mean for that to, to go that way. And you were really gracious about it. And thanks so much for, for being gracious to me. And the kid just looks at the relationship totally differently. So uh, it's not one type of person, but I think it is a spirit of uh, grace and uh, integrity, um, somebody who shows up regularly. Uh, you know, it doesn't always have to do with education. We had a um, formerly Amish uh, lady who was in her 70s who had an eighth grade education, and we paired her with the most highly sexualized eighth grade student in the middle school. <laughs> and that was a famous pairing. They kind of first met and they looked each other down and, and the eighth grader says to her, uh, do you have a cow at home? And without missing a beat, she said, well, not right now, but I used to. Do you want me to tell you about her? And she just <laughs> held space. You know, there are stereotypes we have in our own head. And uh, at the end of that eighth graders year, she was moving to another uh, state, actually. And this girl who had a chip on her shoulder and who had, you know, just the toughest wall. I mean, you could you could the sarcasm was so thick in the room, you could barely breathe. Um, mm. cried hot tears on my desk at the thought of moving. She was like the 12th school she had been to. She never cared about it before, but now she had somebody who loved her in this way that she did not want to leave. She did not want to stop seeing this mentor. And she was devastated at the prospects that she was no longer going to see her face to face. And I think you know, that's the spirit of this is, you know, we're breaking down barriers. We're breaking down stereotypes and walls, but in the best ways. 
this this sounds so wonderful really my head is exploding is how, how can i get a program like this down here in Uruguay <laughs> on a side uh, as a side job apart from me being a schoolmaster very difficult but I would really love to because for many reasons first I think it's an opportunity for people who don't have kids or have grown-up kids to connect with children again which is just fantastic mm -hmm. and, and we live in a time when many successful people choose not to have kids because sometimes careers and parenting are not and still you get a chance to to give uh, to a child and in a give a parent cannot but also because we all sometimes complain and 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 dread the, the state of adolescence and, and youth you know we all say oh you know children these days because every generation does but this really gives a, a, a an opportunity to say okay well you can do something about it become mm -hmm. a mentor Absolutely. And I'm thinking we have such a big problem in, in, in Uruguay, I'm assuming the States too, but with, with drug addiction and, and kids, uh, Uruguay is a country very high in suicide because of the lack of growth. It's a very stable and, and great place to live if you already have a career, but for young people, it's very difficult. It's, it's, it's a land of no opportunity. It's very, very, very quiet. So so many there are a lot of uh, depression a lot of suicide in, in adolescence and i see all these programs and i never seem to i always say well these kids need someone to go talk to them to inspire them and, and this is exactly the, the the kind of thing that that would do the trick so i'm desperate yeah, i think that was well, our mentality on. also you know was um we don't have enough people i would have all these kids in my office who just really needed attention and how are we going to find people who are going to multiply to hold space we need more hours in the day right i remember mm. i could get to eight home visits a day if i didn't take lunch and now you know 601 home visits are happening in a season as we're getting started you know that becomes a lasagna on the front porch with somebody who's kind of you know, ticking it on their way home, that becomes a great conversation around he would be great in football. Oh, but he needs a sports physical. Well, let's, let's problem solve that it happens through relationship. And so, you know, Axel, I think it's really interesting that you say that because, uh, you know, we're, we're at our 10 year point at O'Huddle right now, where, um, you know, we've been talking about some opportunities that we have, and we're right on the precipice of launching something called Co-Huddle. Uh, and that is, you know, taking places outside of our geographic community who want to replicate mentorship with the learnings that we have mm. and uh, doing some pilot processes where we can, you know, take the uniqueness of culture, assets and resources and then launch their own kind of uh, mentorship o huddle version program. So, you know, o huddle means Odyssey huddle. Um, and it's really all about we're all on this journey. And how do we make sure that you find the tribe, the the group of people who are around you, who are really going to make life worth living together? You know, we, mm. we don't always need um, much more than a someone to get that ball rolling. These 40 traits, I'm, I'm wondering, Patrick, maybe we can start choosing them for individual podcast sessions so we can, because probably every parent needs to check, hey, how am I doing on this one? out of 40 things and maybe I should do more. Maybe my grandparent used to do this with me and I'm not doing it with my kid and it was essential for my level of happiness this day. So let, let's, let's, uh, I just leave it floating in the air. So we, when we run out of a subject and we have no words to say, we can, or even actually uh, sooner than that, we can choose one of these topics. What do you think, Patrick? Yeah, I, I guess the, the bigger picture in my head is that, um, you know, an individual parent probably shouldn't feel the responsibility of doing 40 different things that we need mm -hmm. to broaden our community yeah, true too. to help us 
you know, divvy up some of these tasks because we've been given this untenable job as parents these days where we're not supposed to trust, you know, our kids out in the community to be raised by the village. So we have to do it all of our, our all ourselves. Although I do think that those would be helpful guidelines for us to keep in mind. Um, but I'd like to go back. Um, sorry, you keep mentioning the term um, holding space um, as something that really high quality mentors do. What do you mean by holding space? Yeah, I think being able to come without agenda or expectation in a way that presupposes that somebody's going to react a certain way. Mm. And I think this is especially hard to do in parenting is we take a lot of our own identity and our own sense of uh, whether we are doing well or not well in, in parenting on the basis of how, how kids react. The parents who I'm always impressed by and the mentors that I'm always impressed by are those who do not take uh, you know, ownership or accountability off of a child's response. And uh, that's something that I am on the constant path of trying to get better at myself and my own parenting is, uh, you know, sometimes we have this sense of expectation that kids are going to always act this way X. And, you know, the, the variables of I was having a bad day, I didn't feel well, I just am not being my best self. We take this sense that it's our fault if it's not working out. Uh, I, I remember not too long ago, we had a, a mentor who um, had this really difficult kind of a deep end kid who we just knew, uh, you know, kind of family dynamics were, um, you know, challenging CSB was involved. And this kid was really just never uh, engaging. And she would come with her hood up and her hair kind of over her face in a curtain. And sometimes it was lucky if we got a couple of words out. And one day I walked past the hall and the girl is sitting in front of her locker. She's kind of curled into the fetal position with her head on her knees and her hood over her head. And the mentor is sitting next to her. This 70 year old mentor is just sitting right next to her knees up as well, sitting in silence, just holding space. What that girl needed was to not talk in that moment. She didn't need somebody to convince her that she was in a different mood. She didn't need anybody to hustle her out of the emotional state that she was in. She needed somebody to sit right next to her. And when I talked to that mentor later and just encouraged her and said, I bet that was really hard. And she said, yeah, she said, I said, did she say anything the entire session? She said, she looked up and she said, why are you here? And uh, she said, the mentor said, I'm here for you and I will continue to keep coming back for you. And she said, and the girl didn't say anything. She put her head down, but she leaned a little bit closer to that mentor. And sometimes that's what we need is we need somebody mm -hmm. in our, our kind of state of being in a hole to just sit with us in that cold silence and to bear witness to it and hold space for it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very, I think it will be impossible for, I hope there are more than 13 listeners for this podcast because <laughs> anyone listening to this, I think I would feel the need to rush through with this program and participate because once you witness a child suffering, it's very hard to remain impassive, you know? I really hope so. I, I like the idea that there are older adults involved too because to have someone who's been through something, who has mm -hmm. wisdom, who can mm -hmm. sit there and hold that space in a very confident way, you know, because like even as a young psychologist, a school psychologist, I remember kids coming into the office and a great deal of distress and just being shaken, you know, uh, because you don't have that much life experience. They're telling you that some really terrible things happened and you're trying to hold uh, your emotions in check. But it's hard because you haven't experienced that much. But once you've gone through enough life 
where you've started to have friends died around you. Maybe you've had a cancer diagnosis, like you've been through some stuff and you can go and you can sit there and be that rock for a kid. And they can, they can sense that energy, you know, and that takes a certain sort of person with a, with a certain level of experience. Not only that, but I also feel like sometimes those hard experiences that, that, you know, people have lived experience in informs trajectory for kids. And what I mean by that is, you know, if we look at history uh, of who has gone on to do big things, it oftentimes is somebody who has had a formative experience that was devastating in some way. So Malcolm Gladwell has this book called Outliers. And, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing this. I'm probably going to butcher it. But he makes this reference about the number of presidents that we've had who have lost a parent as a child or went through a terrible illness or had, you know, just this really difficult season that enabled them to build stamina. I think sometimes when we are referring, referring to kids as at risk and when I'm getting a referral for a student and they're saying, oh, you know, they're almost, uh, you know, making a reference that this is kind of a broken kid. If we mm -hmm. are reframing that and we're saying this is not a broken kid, this is a kid who is going to become Neil Armstrong. This is a kid who is going to become LeBron James, right? Uh, because, you know, we can leverage those hard things to build a sense of identity and stamina if we generate hope alongside of the hard thing. And if we sit in that heavy silence with them. Yeah. What do you, what do you think it was about the, um, the Amish mentor that resulted in such a strong relationship with the the student? Like, what was it about that relationship that was so helpful and therapeutic to a, a student who was nothing like her mentor? Yeah, I don't think it was that the mentor was nonplussed. I don't think that the mentor um, was just completely hard nosed and went in and didn't care how it was going to go and was going to be brave and was going to, um, you know, white knuckle her way through it. Because I remember lots of conversations where she was saying, you know, I don't know if I feel equipped of this. I, I feel like I have a little bit of imposter syndrome. This girl has the same amount of education that I had. Like, who am I to mentor? Who can I be to do this? I really think it was her vulnerability that she brought to the table. But used in a courageous way. I think that she came in really recognizing her own vulnerability in a way that she saw that in the student too. And she almost saw that this girl was kind of posturing to be able to uh, kind of cover up her own vulnerabilities. And it allowed her to have a sense of commonality and a sense of not sympathy, but empathy. And that was really key. I would say that empathy and uh, being able to say, um, I see you and I care about your experience and some of the uh, gnarled edges and some of maybe the hurtful things that you might be throwing my way or not of you, that is more symptomatic of your experience and your hurts that you have. And I'm here to hold your hurts with you. And that's really what she did that was so successful that won that girl over. Wow. I'm, 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 this brings my my mind to our chapter when we did it when there was a, a school shooting. I don't remember which one was already. We did a a, a podcast on that. Yes. And the, the, I, I now that we're having this conversation, I think these type of programs are much more effective at preventing at least at least school shootings than 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 any legislation on on, on law on on guns, which is so difficult for. For everybody in every country to to agree on, but this is something we could all agree on. And a child that has a mentor listening in probably could 
I mean, this could save lives as simple as that. It, well, and it, it has. Yeah, I, I think that's what I feel so passionate about is, you know, mm. Patrick and I were in uh, for sure every uh, Alice drill, um, you know, kind of uh, beginning of the year professional development session. And they're teaching you to throw the staplers. And I, I had in my I still sometimes I have dreams about my exit plan out of my uh, windowless office and how I would you know what window I was going to try and get through and climb out if we had an active shooter drill. But, you know, really, when you look at being able to truly put a preventative factor in around violence, mentorship mm. and relationships are the number one thing that are going to be a preventative for that. And when you hear those scenarios of this person, you know, knew the shooter and was able to talk them down, was able to, you know, get them to, to disrupt that kind of, of activity. Um, you know, when kids have zero to 10 assets, they are 60% likely to engage in an act of violence. When we hmm. reduce that, or I'm sorry, when we increase the assets to uh, 31 to 40, they are only 4% likely to engage hmm. in an act of violence. And we, uh, I stopped count counting at 13, but last year we had over 13 instances where a kid was coming with a premeditated intentional act of violence to the school, shared it with their mentor, and it resulted in disrupting that, disrupting that incident. So for example, I brought a knife to school because these kids at um, the bus stop have really been bothering me and I want to make sure that they know I mean business. Well, if you find a knife in a kid's backpack at school, that's a juvenile, you know, engagement with law enforcement, right? And so that changes yeah. that trajectory to that kid. But if we can get ahead of that and if we can, um, you know, enable them to have somebody walk alongside of them and say no, but instead, and let's own this and let's do it together and let's make sure this doesn't happen it enables you to prevent those acts. One of the most surprising to me was a 15 year old girl who said, you know, I've been talking to my boyfriend online for two years. We've never met in person, but he's from out of state and he's going to be coming through the 83 truck stop. I can't wait to meet him this weekend. No, that is <laughs> not a child. Uh, hmm. and, and that's a safety issue. That's an act of violence that was enabled to be prevented because she was so excited about was telling her mentor and we were able to get ahead of her being involved in something that could have been a trap, a human trafficking, um, situation oh and, and what was when we looked into it. So, uh, I, I think the sense of safety that I have around, uh, the community that we're creating by being able to hold space for kids who really were and are on a path to violence in some instances, um, from that parenting perspective, enables me to sleep better at night, honestly. Um, it, it helps me to know that when we're at Walmart, for whatever reason, at two o'clock in the morning, we may have pre prevented an instance because when people engage in those acts of violence, it's because of their sense of isolation. It's because they're hurting so much inside that they want to go down in a big way and they want to take other people with them. Enter in a relationship and it almost immediately is able to dismantle that kind of mindset. It, is, it enables the, the you know, shared um, kind of bandwidth of the pain and it reduces that isolation you know, perspective. And so there's no doubt in my mind that we're saving lives and we definitely have evidence of that. Um, it really is the number one preventative that we can engage in our schools is to, to leverage relationship. So uh, what do you think is one of the biggest misunderstandings that mentors have about working with kids? Like, what do they feel they need to do that really is not so necessary? Hmm. I, I do think the challenging growth aspect is something that even I myself didn't fully understand is that, 
you know, developmental psychology uh, is pretty clear that you need to have about a year long relationship with somebody with unconditional regard before you can say, I'm disappointed in you for, you know, not studying for that test or whatever it may be. Um, the kid doesn't care about, and we as humans are very dismissive of somebody who hasn't been around for that long period of time, investing slowly in the relationship uh, to become a part of that. And so I think the, the number one thing that I really try to disrupt as people are coming in and onboarding as mentors is we say, leave your shoulds at the door. You know, it should be this way and you should be doing this. This and uh, you should be waking up on time to get to school on time. We can't we can't challenge that until there's a modeling of I'm with you no matter what. Hmm. And I'm guessing that, that, that goes back to your to your question before Patrick of how it this interacts with parenting because uh, for us when we when we are educating kids we we need to establish both things right we need to be sure that that. Um, uh, um, unconditional love mm -hmm. is there, but at, at the same time, the the disappointment can be there too. But one doesn't work without the other. Unconditional love without expectations doesn't produce any growth, and and mm -hmm. growth without I mean, challenging without unconditional love doesn't work either. So yeah. this is uh, it helps us on our quest of becoming better parents. Yeah, I was just thinking that as well. That uh, there. So probably a lot that parents could learn from your onboarding training, um, Sarah, that would help them to repair relationships with their kids uh, before Definitely. moving on to that next step of holding them to high expectations, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I, I think uh, it's funny because my husband and I oftentimes talk about how really our end game as parents is to drop our kids off, you know, if they're if they decide to go to college to be good roommates, right? Like we're trying to build good roommates in the world. We're trying to build the kind of person who is empathetic towards somebody else who is able to, um, you know, be self-aware enough of how they are reacting and, and what's the chain reaction of somebody else. Um, you know, when we do that, it really is with this understanding that we can't build good roommates unless they understand the why behind it. And unless there's really this anchor of, I care about you through the process and mm -hmm. I care about, you know, the person that you are becoming and you're already, you have nothing to earn of me in that, right? Like you already yeah. are a good person. We're here to give you the, the tenets of how you're going to um, be able to, to turn that into your self-actualized version. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Your roommate is just basically an intimate relationship, a forced intimate relationship with someone. And, and if you can have that really high quality roommate relationship, there's a good chance you're probably going to have a lot of other high quality you know, intimate relationships, which really defines to some degree a, a healthy life. Yeah. And have you ever had a bad roommate? Have you ever had a roommate that wakes up at the crack of dawn and is slamming their closet door and eats all your food and is like crumbs on your bed and, and talking into the late hours without any regard of anyone else around them? I mean, that's, you know, it, it's really what we're saying is we want a good citizen to be somebody that we're putting out into the world. But I think we we lose sometimes the perspective of the uh, underneath the iceberg uh, that is needed to manifest the top of the iceberg turning into that good roommate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those intimate relationships are, are just a reflection of probably how you think of empathy towards and compassion towards everyone, uh, not just the people that you're in relationships with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and sometimes I guess with, with the understanding that we love our children no matter what, 
we tend to mistake that for empathy. And we may love a child, but manifest no empathy because we are not paying enough attention. So they just don't see it. And it's easier to see an empath empathic behavior than to see love. Love is something that if the other person doesn't show it, I mean, yeah, if you wonder, you say, yeah, he, my dad loved me or my mom loved him, but how did it show it? Well, because he saw me like like this woman, like she was sitting next to me and, and didn't expect anything. So this act of empathy are, are just the way you 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 teach your kids to become, I mean, you don't teach it. It's just, it's, it's contagious. And a normal human being exposed to a certain level of empathy becomes empathic himself. This is a way to change the world. I've always thought about this, not through books or, I mean, books help and, and programs help, but it's human to human. And so as a parent, we have the same, the same job and we shouldn't forget it when we are teaching things. I remember hearing an interview of Maya Angelou uh, where she was describing, you know, teenagers and I have, you know, preteens and teenagers right now. And she said, you know, mm -hmm. when they walk into a room, are you looking for the smudge on their face? Are you looking for the wrinkled kind of shirts or do your eyes light up when they walk into a room and be aware mm -hmm. of your presence the first moment they see you, whatever it is, whether it be they're walking into the next room or the first time you see them after school. I really have tried for the past maybe five years to intentionally make my myself light up when I see my kids so that that's their first experience with me as opposed to um, doing the kind of RoboCop analysis of I'm responsible for how you're kept and are you kept well, right? Both yeah. are love, but one yeah. feels like love and one feels like analysis. Yeah, the, the other one you, you you tend to remember when the other person's gone and you say, oh yeah, she did all these horrible things to me because she loved me. And then you understand, but it's sometimes we spend years thinking our parents didn't love us enough because all they showed were these behaviors that were not so empathic. Yeah, no, Sarah, um, from your vantage, and I think you have had a kind of a front row seat to sort of viewing this and, and developing some thoughts on it, but you know, do you believe that there is a youth mental health crisis as so many folks have been talking about? And if so, uh, what are the causes and, and what should the interventions be? Mm. I, I think, uh, you know, we are in a really interesting part of history in that, you know, we're kind of sort of post-COVID uh, epidemic, and, and we also have a lot of technology uh, kind of trajectory over the past 10 years that feels really different. It's pretty crazy for me to think about a time that we were pre-smartphone and what that world looked like and my um, my my map quest printouts that I used to have in my car, right? Now we live in kind of a totally different world, but part of that world is very much centered around an individual opportunity to check out in screens. And we have that for adults. We have that for kids. We also have a sense of um, maybe a little bit of overstructuring sometimes. Uh, I was sharing with somebody the other day that I live in, uh, I grew up on a brick street um, with kind of stay-at-home moms and older retired ladies who would tell on us if we were doing the wrong thing in the neighborhood. And we would all kind of run through each other's backyards and we would play together. And that was where I wanted to raise my kids. And so I live on a brick street with kind of all the homes that were built in the 1920s and they all look different. And um, it's very, you know, like close. We all have really small yards and we all have kids the same age but it is not the same experience. And mm -hmm. when my kids go over and they knock on somebody's door mm -hmm. in the middle of the summer, well, that kid's at soccer camp or this kid is, um, you know, at this club activity because the parents are working during the day. And um, it's not 
I don't know if it's better or worse because we have a lot of structured activities for kids, but what it is for sure is different. And I think that when we talk about a mental health epidemic, mental health is really rooted in a sense of belonging and a sense of uh, community and ability to form relationships in a way that are beyond structure and transaction that feel a little bit more organic sometimes. And when I'm interacting with kids who don't have that sense of belonging, especially in those middle school years that are so difficult, it is really with a sense that there's a lack of opportunity towards that. And so I would say that coupled with us kind of coming out of COVID, you, there was a lot metastasizing during the COVID epidemic with our students, especially those who were living in poverty and experiencing additional traumas. What we saw in year two kind of coming out of COVID was this bloom of behavior situations that, again, had just been you know, slowly building into something. Uh, there's a book called The Body Keeps the Score. And that's what it felt like to me. It felt Double like money. it was there all along. And it just is now kind of coming to the surface because it's safe to do so. And mm -hmm. so what do we do about that? Yeah, so safe to do so. Storm. Yeah, safe to do so, I think is a, is a good point. I feel like people are finally accepting that it's okay to talk about mental health. And this newest generation has become a bit savvy with the language and vocabulary of mental health. And I think there are a lot of sort of influencers who are describing these things. So so that's part of it. It's almost as like uh, what had been repressed before is now being let out. But then also, as you mentioned, and Axel and I have talked about quite a bit and lamented this sort of new era where... Uh, our kids, you know, we tried to set them up for the the joyous um, childhoods that we had running free and everyone's so structured about everything. And um, there's, there's a sort of a lack of agency and a lack of opportunity for unstructured time and socialization um, and independence and um, sense of agency around doing things for yourself, getting from point A to point B, cooking, um, you know, forming a, a, a group and, and, you know, engaging in teamwork. All those things that happen in unstructured play when parents aren't hovering around. But I mean, I guess the question is, what do we do about it? You know, I mean, what's done is done, maybe to some degree. Do we try to recreate that or or how do we handle it? I don't think there's ever any going back. I, I think we it's a new normal that we're establishing. And I would say maybe a little bit of what we're doing is restructuring relationship in a way that feels organic again, you know, is like, here's the specific time we're doing this, you're getting it, but it's not just somebody, you know, across a wash line. I, I definitely don't want to romanticize the days when uh, a woman like me wouldn't have had a choice to be a working mom. You know, there are a lot of benefits of two parents working. I think one of them being, we talked about it, takes a village you know, my kids have uh, time once a week with a grandparent who teaches them to bake and she loves that and she's so good at it. And another one who loves to be outdoors and explaining every plant. And I uh, am not as good at either of those things. I have no sports prowess to save my life. And a grandparent who's teaching, you know, golf or I'm going to go throw, you know, catch with you. That is diversifying the opportunities that that kid has to be able to garner a skill and a passion that's outside a single person. And I think, you know, in my own childhood, even though I had lots of friends, I, I didn't have necessarily the adult capital and access that is necessary to be able to leverage in a season in which we are two parent working families. And so doing that with intentionality, I think is a big part of it. I think it is realizing that we're not necessarily going to go and knock on screen doors and have them always be open, but how do we get intentional about planning it? Uh, something that I'm doing, for example, 
is uh, it feels like the world is so busy. And, you know, what do my adult friendships look like right now? I go grocery shopping with my friends. You know, that's our time together. We're going to chat while we're doing. I hate grocery shopping so hard. Uh, but if we're planful of it, we're getting something done that we need to, but we're also inheriting a sense of belonging as we are ticking that off of our box. So getting creative with it in our own lives and then being able to create system for it in the communities that we're in, I think is is probably the best recommendation I can make. It's not going to solve everything, but I think it's where we're at. Cool. Well, I just have uh, one more question. Maybe Axel does before you give us some information about Huddle if people want to get involved. But um, the, the first is, uh, how have you grown as a parent um, via your role as a, a mentoring expert? Uh, have, have you changed the way that you've done things? Yeah, I, expert's a heavy word. I don't know if I feel expert yet, but I, I do think that uh, I recognize in um, maybe that moniker that we're all in a little bit of imposter syndrome at every leg of our uh, season of parenting. And something that I recognize now having preteens and friends with toddlers is that, um, you know, the the little old ladies, like I'm one now who's coming up to you in the grocery store sometimes and saying, oh, you should do this, is really, all that is, is somebody off-gassing. I was through that season and I felt like I mastered it for this minute before it transitioned into this completely different thing and I was a novice again. And so let me leverage my uh, my learning for you in a way that hopefully makes it feel less uncomfortable than I did in that moment. And so I think if I had anything to learn, it was my own fragility, I guess, as a parent and recognizing that I'm never going to be an expert in that. And nobody's really ever an expert in it. And that that's okay. And it's okay to say, you know, I'm in uh, a growth season, or I we're, you know, we're not in um, the ideal place that we'd like to be, but that we're not forgoing the moment. And we're not forgoing the mindfulness of this. Uh, and we're trying to to um, engage as we can by bringing our best self forward. So if I expect that out of myself as either a mentor or a parent, I think it's fair for me to use that language with my children as well and say, listen, I don't expect you to be perfect. Uh, I'm definitely a recovering perfectionist. Uh, I'm expecting you to bring your best self forward and let's with authenticity navigate this together. I was just no, going to say, please. it's funny to be vulnerable, to recognize what stages you're good at and what stages you're not. I was terrible at the infant stage. I just <laughs> remember thinking, this little meatloaf has nothing to offer by way of conversation, but I know that they're supposed to be <laughs> absorbing my language, but what am I talking to? They can't talk back. And so I really, I realized I was at kind of a low point when I was making this PowerPoint presentation for my six month old with talking points that were developmentally appropriate <laughs> on major art uh, exhibits. And I was like, what am I doing? What, what's a PowerPoint for us? Like, no, Sarah, like you're just not good at this and you need to find a part. Like my husband was fortunately pretty good at the little kid, like the baby stage. I'm really good at teenagers. We're so sarcastic together. It's lovely. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what one quick question, just uh, statistical is how many programs are like yours in the United States? Is this a regular thing? Yeah. So, I mean, definitely Big Brother, Big Sister program, I, I would say, is the hallmark mentorship organization uh, in, in the States here. And we learn you know, so much from them and so value the, the organization for sure. I, what I find myself surprised by is uh, that our numbers in our county uh, surpass you know, those national organizations right now. And I think the, mm. again, the reason is, is that we're catching kids in the school day and we're using school lexicon and systems and learnings of how education works to be able to set it up for success. 
to my experience, I've not found another organization that's doing it the way that we're doing. I'm actually, I've been pretty actively looking for one, um, but I think we have a little bit of uniqueness in how our relationship has been built around the public school experience and setting and stakeholdership. Uh, mm -hmm. So as far as I know, one, but there are other kind of vestiges of mentorship that also are uh, really well researched and funded and supported. Mm. Uh, and the, this one is a little bit of the books. Have you considered this this model could be useful for adults? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we we are in some conversations with community corrections. You know, when you've got somebody who was previously incarcerated and they are re-entering into the community, mentorship mm -hmm. is a really uh, key you know, point of practice around uh, reducing recidivism. And so I think there is a lot of value in saying, you know, how do we do this? There are many uh, churches and dioceses that have a kind of mentorship asset relative to, um, you know, sometimes people in uh, kind of end stages of life or, you know, difficult circumstances or poverty. And so I think that's being done a variety of different places. But, you know, I guess the at the end of the day, you know, my answer is yes, we should have more and we should um, be leveraging that to whatever degree we can for as many humans as possible. Well, I, I, I'm left speechless, really. This is a, it has given me and I hope all my, our listeners too will plenty to think about not only on, well, how to implement these kind of programs in, in our cities, but also about the, the type of human relationship we, we establish. But I think there's something very healthy about this mentoring. And I think it's also filling a gap that has been left also by other organizations that have maybe got out of society or this interaction. Maybe I'm thinking maybe the pastor would be a, a good mentor or that the if you had a good church or a good such an organization, you would find more people willing to get involved in your lives, even if you were uh, uh, not a, a family member. And I think this is emerging as something beautiful and, 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 and that doesn't need that type of structure with all the the, the problems that you they also bring about so i don't know just uh thank you for this wonderful conversation and, and thank you for inspiring us to to do more i hope more people get involved in, in the ohio uh region and uh this is on on, on cleveland or is it in all ohio we're only in wayne county so we're kind of right uh, halfway oh. between cleveland and columbus right now oh it's um, a very very located uh program absolutely. i hope you can you can spread without losing the the, the spirit which is always a challenge yeah, we've got a plan for it. I'm I'm excited for this next season for us with co-huddle and with some of those opportunities of people who want to be able to again take those learnings and and put it where they're at. You know, mentorship is such a symbiotic uh, opportunity for relationship. There's a power dynamic that feels very much more equitable, and I think mm -hmm. that that's part of the the beauty behind it. And when we can find those opportunities for our own kids, parenting is oftentimes got a specific dynamic. One has to be, um, you know, calling the shots sometimes, but when we can, you know, intersperse some of these other opportunities in it, it makes parenting better too. And it makes our family relationships more rich and uh, really more fruitful at the end of the day. So I, yep, I so give you all kudos to what you're doing because I've learned a lot through your podcast too. Well, we are glad that you listened, but, but so you're saying that, that that's what it was even you're if you're a, you're a parent who, with kids and you feel you don't have enough time getting involved and in, and doing mentoring for a different kid might help you reflect and improve your own relationship with kids right 
Absolutely that's, true. That, that's what I was feeling that it, it would reconnect your you with another version of yourself that is no so not so invested in getting this kid through college and 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 getting whatever you want to achieve with your kid but just open to listen and loving because we all have that but sometimes we lose it with our kids so okay that's another and of of course i guess you need sponsors always yeah we we are always looking to be able to to support the need i think what's interesting about mentorship in uh the state of ohio and really you know nationally is it's not really a funded program so we we're not medicaid billable we're not you know we don't take any uh you know registration fees or anything like that so you know the program is entirely built off of contributions donations and grants that we write um and we've got again really robust research and data that shows just how well it's working so uh yes definitely all Always fighting the good fight to make sure sustainability is is yeah. within reach. So if you don't have the listener who doesn't have the time to go and be a mentor, well, maybe you can support someone else so the organization can provide all the training, all the costs, and imagine that they are not you. Absolutely. So uh, if folks want to get in contact with you to be able to donate or uh, participate in your program, what do they have to do? Yeah, so they're just going to go to ohuddle.org. It's O-H-U-D-D-L-E.org. And it'll get you all the information about the program and how to be in touch with me. Um, again, we're we're lifelong learners too. So we're always looking to connect with people who have good ideas or who want to be stakeholders in some way. Um, it really has become a, a huddle. And it's funny how many hopeful people just approach us and want to be a part of it. And then it just completely turns a new leaf of new directions and new things that we can build and grow. Great. Thanks so much, Sarah. Now, uh, you're probably familiar with this since you've listened to the, the podcast, but we always end with Axel's um, jokes, mostly on color, but sometimes slightly off color. So, Axel, would it's, you like to to give us any jokes to end? These are just reflections. You know, these are not, it's a philosophical thing. I'm, I have time only for one because. <laughs> oh, my gosh, the Zoom yes. cut him off. Are you doing this because I have to tell a joke now, Patrick? No, no. That one ready if you need me <laughs> do to. You really? All right, do it. What? Okay, are you ready? Oh no. Oh no, he's got it. Okay, go. Yeah, I'm, okay, sorry. I got it. I got it. So, what do you call a typo inscribed on a tombstone? Dumb. A grave mistake. Oh, that's good. A typo inscribed. Wait, okay, got gotcha. you. Gotta go. I'm sorry about that. I ruined wait, wait. the whole interview. It was Sarah, wonderful. Sarah to have actually you. has one too. I want to. No, hear I don't. That is good. So now oh. you gotta. No, you gotta... no, no. You. Have oh yes, to please, because the connection got lost while just while I was gonna say it. Say it, Sarah. Chip uh, it in. What? No. See, I lost it. I lost it. Next time. Next time. Oh come on, be brave. Okay. <laughs> well, 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 wait, she said something. next time. So yes. we we are gonna have it another time. This is a commitment. <laughs> we have. It's exactly. it's on the record. Yeah. Verbal commitment. We'll I'll, bring I'll start back. with a joke. I echo Thank everything you. that Axel said. Absolutely fantastic. Thank you, Sarah, for taking all this time. It went over as uh, we often do, but appreciate it. And um, I will uh, make sure I send you this recording. Thank you so much. I was really all looking right. forward to this. You guys are the best. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. You're awesome. Bye.